Amen. Amen. If you could come back in and take your seat. Well, it was, oh, 38 years ago. How many of you are alive 38 years ago? If you're not sure, you probably were. It just means the mind's the first, you know. <laughs> 38 years ago, on June 14th, 1980, at the altar of Lima Baptist Church, there... Cavern Edwards and I made vows to one another. We left that evening on our honeymoon, which we had to cut short because we ran out of money. And we did not want to charge anything on the credit card, even though we had a credit card. We thought, that's not a good way to start your marriage in debt. So we came home, and like many, I believe even today in the traditions of weddings, we came home to a pile of wedding gifts, many more gifts than cards. And so we opened our gifts, and upon each gift, there would either be a, a card in it or a card taped to it, and we would open the card first to see who it was from. And the truth is, at that time and to this day, we lived grateful for the generosity of people's hearts and desires to sacrifice of their own finances in order to help us get a step up in our married life. We weren't looking to start higher than anybody else. We were just looking for some like bare necessities like a fork and a knife. That would be nice to start. And they did it so well. But there was one gift that we received that was a nice gift, but it didn't seem to have a card with it. And to this day, there is someone out there who is probably offended with Karen and I because we never sent them a thank you card. So my question is, have you ever gotten a gift and you didn't know who it was from? That It's like, I want to thank somebody, but I don't know who it's from. Or, have you ever gotten a gift and you don't know what it is? My wife and I were opening our gifts after our honeymoon, and we came upon this gift that I looked at it, and it was like these two plastic things, or maybe it was three even, I don't remember honestly. It was gold-colored, and it kind of had like leaves in this oblong kind of shape. Uh, it was just like, I looked at this gift and I thought, I don't have a clue what this is or what it's for. Fortunately, my wife was smarter, and she knew that it was a gift that you would hang on your wall to take up space where you had nothing else to put. That's exactly what it was. It was a wall hanging. For all of you who have walls and you don't know what goes there, wall hangings go there. I found that out. Or how many of you parents or grandparents have ever had your little toddler run up to you with a piece of construction paper upon which they have drawn this Rembrandtist you know, a monstrosity? And you're looking at it and everything in you wants to say, what is this? But you have learned that that could hurt their little feelings, and you don't want to hurt their little feelings. So you say, this is beautiful. What were you thinking about while you drew this? What was your inspiration? Some way to find out what it is so you can say, that's a lovely horsey, or a unicorn, or a flower, or I don't know, uh, whatever it is. 
Things that we don't quite get, we don't understand. And the truth is, all of us have gotten gifts that we don't know who they're from or even what they really are. And when it comes to the gifts that God gives to us, which are called spiritual gifts, there's often misunderstanding and sometimes even misuse of those gifts. Uh, This is one of the times when I think it's important for us to understand this thing about spiritual gifts. I heard the story about uh, three young men who grew up in a single-parent home with their mother, and they moved out and went on in their lives, and they actually became fairly well-to-do. And they got together one year, and they decided, we want to do something to bless our mother. How can we show her our appreciation? And so they came up with a plan. The first and the oldest son said, you know, mom has always lived in this little tenement apartment. She has sacrificed everything for us. I have the wherewithal now. I want to buy her a big house that she can have all for herself. The second son said, I want to buy mom a car. She's never gone anywhere. She's only gone back and forth to work from her apartment. I want to buy her a beautiful Rolls Royce. And because I know that she's not seeing as well as she used to, I'm actually going to pay for a lifetime chauffeur to take her anywhere she wants to go. The third son had to think long and hard, and he finally said, you know, one of the other places mom has always gone was to church. She loves church. She loves the Bible. She loves God's Word. But as she's gotten a little bit older, her eyesight has gotten worse. She's got cataracts. She can't see clearly. So in our church, our pastors and elders took 12 years to train a parrot to memorize the entire Bible. I'm going to give her this parrot, and all she has to do is say the book and the verse, and the parrot will recite it for her. She won't even have to open the Bible anymore. And so they all decided to do this. They gave their mom these gifts. And after several weeks, their mom wrote them a thank you note. And here's what she said. This is her first son, Milton. The house you built is lovely, but it's so large. I live in just one room, but I have to clean the entire house or else I'd be embarrassed. It's way too big. To her second son, Gerald, she wrote, I'm too old to travel anymore. I just stay home most of the time anyways and watch Dr. Phil. So I rarely use your Rolls Royce. Besides, the chauffeur that you gave me is very, very rude. And so I don't really go anymore. You can have it back. To her third son, Donald, she wrote, The little chicken you sent me tasted delicious. That was the best (laughs) gift of all. Again, gifts can be misunderstood and even misused. And if you're a follower of Christ, this is one of the occasions in which ignorance is not bliss. In fact, uh, I'm going to give you a lot of verses today. This is going to be far more of a simple teaching, but a teaching. uh, What I want to teach on, I, I started with this premise almost in my mind. Why am I teaching on this? Everybody already knows all of this. But I realize it's possible that in your walk in God, you don't know this stuff, and this would be valuable stuff for you to understand in your walk with Christ. So I want to teach you some things, and I'm going to use a lot of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, you'll want to keep them handy. If you have your phones, keep it nimble with thumbs. Be careful of carpal tunnel. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. 
Look at that word ignorant for a minute. Ignorant. It, it comes from a Greek word, agnoeo. Agnoeo. That word gives us our word, agnostic. And he says, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be an agnostic. What is an agnostic? Agnostic is a person who isn't firm in their beliefs. They don't want to make a firm statement of fact. They just don't know. They're, they're non-committal about things. And Paul is telling us when it comes to spiritual gifts, you can't be non-committal. You can't be who cares. You need to understand what God is saying. In fact, Paul only uses this word agnoeo twice in all of the Scripture. The first time is in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he talks about death and the resurrection of the dead. And he says, concerning those who have fallen asleep or those who have died, I don't want you to be an agnostic. I want you to know that there is life after death. That we're all going to stand in the presence of Almighty God. So Paul tells us, don't be ignorant about death or the resurrection of the dead. And then here he tells us, don't be ignorant of spiritual gifts. So there are things that we need to understand. We need to know what they are and how they work and what their purpose is. And then again, please understand, I don't have time in the brief time we have this morning to give an exhaustive teaching about this. I'm going to give as brief a teaching on this specific thing as I can. And over the next few weeks, you're going to hear me and Pastor Jonathan speak about spiritual gifts on different levels. And you'll understand why in a moment. But we're going to do it as carefully as we can, as thoroughly as we can in the brief time that we have. And it's an encouragement to you that maybe it would be worth you actually doing some reading of your own in the Bible to see what God says and how the gifts actually function. So, first, before we even begin, I want to make sure you understand something. There are things that people sometimes equate with the gifts that are not the gifts at all. So, number one, the gifts are not the fruit of the Spirit. They're not the fruit of the Spirit. That is given to us by the Holy Spirit, but it's developed and grown within us as we walk with God more and more. The gifts of the Spirit are different from the fruit of the Spirit in that the fruit of the Spirit reflects something of the character or the nature of God. So they're not the fruit of the Spirit. Secondly, they are not merely personality types. There can be overlaps, as we will see even next week. There can be some things that you can say, well, that's just my personality. But it's more than that, because there are gifts that God has planted in your soul that He wants to blow upon and see them enhanced by His Spirit. So they're not merely personality types. And thirdly, they're not merely talents or skills that you have developed over the years. God can use those, and those are wonderful. But the gifts of the Spirit are more than just talents or skills that you have. Spiritual gifts are imparted to us, imparted, given to us by God at different times and in different places. And by the way, the gifts can actually change as we will discuss as we move along a little bit more. But primarily, when you are born again, just like when you were born as a child, there are some things that are inside of your being, some things that are part of the warp and woof of who you are. Just so when you are born again, God puts some things inside of you that He wants to see begin to flourish. And they are called the gifts of the Spirit. Another time when you can receive gifts, not just when you are born again, when you get saved, when you become a believer of Jesus Christ and you follow Him, you can also receive them when you are filled with the Holy Ghost. 
for those of you that that's perhaps a strange term. Maybe you've never heard of that before. It's first referenced in Acts chapter 2 when God poured out His Spirit on the day of Pentecost and they were filled with the Spirit, it says, and they began to speak in other tongues. There are some who would say that speaking in tongues is something that you can learn. Can you teach me how to do that? No. We can't give you some sounds to say and that you can now say you speak in tongues. I, I was with somebody just recently. I can't remember who it is. Maybe you're even here. You were in a church, perhaps, and they told you, what we want you to do is we want you to screech at the top of your lungs. And when they did, they said, you got it. You got tongues. Well, tongues are not something that you can just somehow make somebody mimic. It is, in fact, one of the gifts of the Spirit that we'll be looking at in a few weeks. But they are things that God plants in you at the time in which God fills you with His Holy Ghost, which the early church called the second work of grace of God. It is not necessarily separate because you can be saved and filled with the Holy Spirit at the same time. But you can also be saved, and there are some of us, like me, who nothing knew nothing of being filled with the Spirit. I grew up in a tradition where it wasn't even taught. In fact, it was taught that it was wrong. It took me years to come to the understanding, based upon the Word of God, that there is something that God can do inside of all of us called being filled with the Spirit or baptized in the Spirit. And that's something that God wants for all of us. He desires that kind of walk with us. And at that time, He also imparts gifts to us. One thing is clear. Every single one of you in this room who calls yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a follower of Jesus. I'm not just talking about you believe in Him. The devils believe in God. I'm talking about you believe on Him. You put your trust in Jesus. He is your Savior. He is your God. What He says goes. That's what it means to be a believer. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have gifts of God that are stored inside of you. You are like a bank that God wants to open in order to enrich people around you. In fact, God says this in His Word in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. And again, you can just note these verses down and go back and check them for yourself later. I'm not going to take a lot of time with them. Each one, each one has his own gift from God. Each one. Every single one of you who are a believer has gifts of God inside of you. And then, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received that gift, minister to one another that gift as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So as you have gifts, its intention is that it would be used. So recognize from the very beginning, every single one of you who are a believer in Jesus have gifts stored inside of you. And God's purpose is that those gifts be released and that they actually enrich those around you. Now, in the New Testament, there are primarily five different Greek words that are used for gift. I'm not going to take a lot of time with them. I'm not trying to impress you with my knowledge of Greek. The best that I know about Greek is a deli somewhere, but I do know a few Greek words, or I'm at least able to look them up. But there are five different Greek words, and uh, those Greek words, we're going to just put them up here really quick for you. Go ahead, throw them right up there. Doma, and a form of doma, by the way, is the domai, doron, doria, dorima, dosis, and then merisomos, all of those are different Greek words. But the primary one, number five, is charismata. It comes from the word charisma, or even a, a further root of that is the word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, from which we get our word grace. So that charisma, or charismata, is actually a grace 
capacity. It is the ability of God to work through you by His grace in the release of that gift. And when that gift is used, grace is imparted to people around you. Now again, I don't want to take a lot of time with that. I want to be able to move on because in order to get through this, I need to kind of do this in a brief form. So, I need some help. Where did my helpers go? I got one here. Can you help me, Jeff? Is she okay or is she even there? Oh, she's back there. Okay, well, one to everybody, really quickly. Quick, 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 quick. This doesn't count as my time. All right. I'm waiting for the timer to stop back there. This is a simple handout that I'm going to ask you to kind of keep with you in your Bible, perhaps, or in your notebook. Something to help you over these next weeks as we look at this study of the gifts. Um, Although there are five different Greek words for gift in the Bible, there are three primary lists talking about gifts in the Bible. How are we doing? Everybody got one now? Everybody got one? Yes, yes, yes. Wait, coming around that way to Sister Myrna and Ashley. Everybody? Oh, David didn't get one back there. Okay, does everybody have one? Anybody doesn't have one? Okay. Look at that list if you would. Uh, I've divided it into three categories, as you can see, three columns. Each column represents a separate list of gifts of the Spirit, gifts of the Holy Spirit, that God wants to impart to various ones of us. And again, not everybody is going to have every single gift, but it is possible that you can have more than one gift, and it is possible that your gifts can actually change over time based upon the need of the situation. Because one of the things that's important to understand is the gift is not really just about you. It is about the need of those around you. So look at that list, if you would. At the top, on the left-hand side, uh, the little box I gave you there, uh, the first thing is creative gifts. I gave you this handout because I knew you could never see the, up on the wall there in your thing. It's just it's too far away. At least it is for me if you're sitting in the back row. That's small. So, creative gifts. Right next to it are ascension gifts, or are also called fivefold gifts, or sometimes are called support or office gifts. And then next to that are supernatural gifts. I've given you the verses in the Bible where these gifts are delineated, where they're actually listed out. But then I've given you the list. So under creative gifts, there's prophecy, serving, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy. That's in Romans 12. Under ascension gifts, or the fivefold gifts, are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. That's in Ephesians chapter 4. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, supernatural gifts. These are the ones everybody wants to most often talk about. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, plural, working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, different kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues. Now, at the bottom, at the top, those columns are ones that everybody else gives me. At the bottom are the ones that I I saw some different things uh, that I hadn't seen before. 
Jack Hayford suggests, and I trust Jack Hayford, I, I love him as a man of God, but in his mind at least, each of these lists delineate a different set of gifts from a different member of the Godhead. Now when I say the Godhead, I'm talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are all God, one God, but three separate persons who function in a unity beyond that which we can understand. But I believe it was Jack Hayford. I think I found this in his book. If I'm wrong, please forgive me. Uh, I believe he said, one, creative gifts out of Romans chapter 12 are given by the Father. Ascension or fivefold gifts are given by the Son. And supernatural gifts are given by the Spirit. If you want to separate it, fine. I'm just giving you some distinctions just to kind of help you to get further understanding. Now, the bottom two sets of things that I have there are from me. The first is, I call the first Romans 12 heart gifts, and you'll understand why when we get there. The next ones in Ephesians 4 are callings. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians 12, are miraculous gifts. Or, the Romans 12 are motivational gifts. The Ephesians 4 are ministry gifts. And the 1 Corinthians 12 are manifestation gifts. So I kind of gave you just a little chart so that as we talk about these gifts over the next weeks, we're going to break them up into portions, into those columns. And each week we're going to look at one of those columns. So whether it be myself or Pastor John, you can take these and kind of follow along with us and see what's going on. And for today, as you'll look at your handout, I'm going to be dealing with something specific. Now, if you were to jump, and you can put this in your notes, to 1 Peter chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you will actually see some other gifts that are referenced. Some other gifts in those two portions. I think there's some overlap, but there are some people who would suggest that they are distinct. And if they are, that means the totality of the gifts are about 37 gifts referenced in the New Testament. 37 gifts referenced. I say that to you with this caveat. I don't believe God is beyond originality. I think He's still a creative God. God can still do things beyond what you understand, what you expect or anticipate, and God can even do things beyond His Word. God is not limited to the Bible. He is in the Bible. It is His Word, but He can say more if He wants. In fact, John tells us at the end of his chapter, at the end of his book, and you can go and check it out for yourself, the last chapter of John, John tells us if everything that Jesus ever said and did was written down, it would fill all the libraries of the world. So there's much more of God than just these gifts. I believe God can be ultimately as creative as He wants to be because he's a creative God, and he can do beyond this. I also think there are possibilities of other gifts that we even recognize as gifts. Like, we talk about the gift of singleness. It's where God perhaps puts upon the heart of an individual, I shouldn't marry, I should give myself totally to the work of God and not be encumbered, as Paul calls it that way, encumbered by a spouse. Because he says if you're married, your thoughts, your attitude, your ideas have to be towards your spouse. So there are people who God uniquely gifts with this desire to stay single, not a desire to marry. And so some people talk about a gift of celibacy or a gift of singleness. Some even talk about like a gift of poverty where people willingly give everything away in order just to walk simply with God. So it's possible that there are other gifts out there, but we're going to be looking at these gifts that are listed right here in this chart. So 
Before we jump in, I want to point out a couple of things to you. And when I said I was going to do a lot of Scripture, I am. If you have pen, you might want to take note of these. I'm going to just put them up as quick as I can, trying to get as much in today as kind of an introduction to the gifts while still dealing with column two as I possibly can. So, the first thing is, I want you to recognize the gifts have a purpose. The gifts have a purpose. And Paul tells us what it is in Ephesians 4.12. It is for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. From the beginning, Paul tells us that the gifts of the Spirit aren't yours to show off. They're not yours to tout how spiritual you really are. They're not yours to somehow boast in yourself or play with as if they belong to you. In fact, the truth is, the gifts have greater purpose. They're intended for the body of Christ to be built up and to become stronger and better. In fact, Paul tells in Romans 12, I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. When he talks about the word soberly, he means modest and without illusion. Don't think of yourself better than what you are. Think of yourself soberly, carefully, because the gift is not really about you. It's about building up the body of Christ. When it comes to the manifestation or the function of the gifts, none of us has a right to boast in them. I don't care what you think your gift is. Your gift might be prophecy. Your gift might be uh, apostleship. Your gift might be uh, healings. You have some gifts. They're not really yours. They're gifts from God to you to be used for the good of the body of Christ. In fact, the truth is, you should think of yourself as a UPS driver. You're just delivering the gifts that God has given to you to somebody else. The package is the gift. And it's for somebody else, you're the delivery. Or another way of thinking about it is, you're the PVC pipe. You're the conduit through which God causes His gifts to flow. So the gifts are not primarily about you. The gifts are about the needs of the people around you. Now, can they be used outside of the body of Christ? Absolutely. They are primarily given, first and foremost, for the body of Christ. But they're also given so that we can use our gifts to bless those around us wherever we are. Out in the world, wherever we are. I, I sit in buds sometimes. Dave and I will be there together drinking our coffee. And people will come in. I had somebody come in not too long ago. Uh, he's a young man. Uh, well, young man compared to my age. Um, he's probably 37, 38, 39, maybe even 40. I don't know. I don't think so. But he comes in and he sits. And the funny thing is he's talking to people around him and he sits at our table and he'll say, I'll ask Pastor Chris because he's the one who's going to keep me on the straight and clear. And I've never touted that for anybody. He says, well, when I want to know what's right and wrong, I come to him. When I want to know what I should do about a situation, I ask him. I've never said anything like that to him. I've never pretended to be anything other than what I am. In fact, what you see here on Sunday morning is what you would see anywhere I go. Because I'm nothing fancy. I am just a piece of PVC. That's the best that I am. Maybe it's gone from 4-inch PVC down to 2-inch PVC now. But it's still just a conduit. I'm just a UPS driver who delivers packages as best I can whenever I feel like God might have something to say. But we can't boast in ourselves. Do you, do you understand that? 
The gifts are not so that you can say, look at me. In fact, if anything, any gift you had should say, look at God. Look at the goodness of God in giving this to you. It's not yours at will. I can't just throw it around because I want to. It is God's gift to the body of Christ and to those around you as they have need. The gifts have purpose. In fact, he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. It's for everybody else. It's so that we all can grow up into the mature picture of God's Son that He wants us to be. It's not owned by you. We're channels of God's grace. In fact, the gifts not only have a function and a purpose, they have a way that they work best. It was mentioned in prayer. Nicole mentioned it in prayer this morning. Is that if you're looking at the list of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, for example, the last verse says we should seek the gifts. We should. But then he tells us there's a better way. Do you know what that better way is? What is it? Love. In other words, if your gifts are not functioning out of love for people and love for God, there's already something wrong. There's something tainted in it. Gifts are intended to be the expression of the love of God and your love for people. Not to be used so that you feel better about yourself. So that it gives you your sense of identity. I don't care whether you're on the worship team and you have a gift of worship leading or singing or, or playing song. It is not about you. And when you begin to wear that or any other ministry as your identity, you're getting yourself in trouble. Because it would be just like our good Father in heaven who cares more about your identity being in Him than you being comfortable to take away all of the props so that you can only look at Him and say, that's who I am. I'm in Christ. So that I've had people say to me, well, it's easy for you to say, you're still pastoring. I'm not pastoring anymore. I have told you and I have said to you again and again, if I weren't pastoring, I would be just fine. Because number one, my identity is not in what I do. My identity, I'm working more and more on this. This is not a finished product. But my identity more and more is locked into Christ and who He says I am. So that I often look at a picture that is on the uh, back of the bookcase facing my desk in my office. I often look at a little mouse pad that I have that says, these are the things that God says I am. All the rest is just frosting on the cake. I shouldn't have said that. Okay. (sighs) All of that's just the gravy. All of that's just stuff that God lets us do. That's not who I am. Secondarily, Beyond all of that, because I don't have the office of pastor, it doesn't stop who I am inside. So that if you are a pastor, it's because God's gifted something inside of you. And you're going to do it whether it's at Bud's or it's here. You're going to watch out for people. You're going to care for people. So I want you to understand, love is the way that these gifts work. We are just PVC pipes. UPS, you, know, you think of the analogy that works best for you. But that's who we are. But here's the problem. For most of the people in the church today, I believe the issue is not that we're misusing or abusing the gifts. I've seen it. I have seen abuse. I have seen misuse. But I don't think that's true for the majority of us. I think for the majority of us, we don't even use our gifts. In fact, we don't even know we have gifts. Um, Dr. Bill Bright, who I believe was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, I think that's true. Um, He told a story once about a man by the name of Yates 
who owned a farm out in Texas. Huge, huge sheep farm. But this was during the Depression era. And Mr. Yates didn't have enough money. His farm wasn't making enough money to pay his mortgage. And so Mr. Yates ended up living off of government subsidies. I'm talking about getting, how, how many of you remember when the government used to give you these big uh, tins of peanut butter? Remember, with the oil saturating the top, and you had to stir it in order to get real peanut butter, or powdered milk. Remember those days? Okay, he was living off of that. Even though he had a big farm, it was making no money. He was barely scraping by, and every day he'd go out and take care of his animals, wondering, is this the day I'm going to lose it all? One day, Mr. Yates was out tending his farm, taking care of his animals, and a truck pulled up. And it was a seismologist who said, after doing some study, we believe there might actually be some oil on your property. Would you mind if we did some drillings? They drilled the first well, and when they got down to, I want to make sure I'm right, 1,115 feet, they struck a huge oil reserve. That first well came in at 80,000 barrels a day. Many subsequent wells on his property were more than twice that amount. In fact, after 30 years of pumping oil on his property, one well that they dug was still pumping 125,000 gallons a day. Now, here's my point. Mr. Yates, who became known as Yates Pool, was living on property that had resources galore. He was a multi, multi, multi-millionaire and never knew it. He was living like a pauper, like he didn't have anything. And I think many Christians have gifts, and they don't even know they have gifts. They don't realize that God has put something inside of them that helps to drive who they are. And that the best thing we can do is begin, by God's Spirit, to release those gifts out there. So, what I want to do in the brief time I have left, and it's going to be quick, it's got to be quick. I'm sorry it's so quick, but this is just the way it's got to be for our time frame. I want to look at that middle column. So if you'll look at that middle column, uh, that middle column deals primarily with um, the issues of the office gifts or the support gifts, the ministry gifts, as I've denoted below. So if you would, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, I'm going to read a lengthier passage. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 7. Ephesians 4, 7. Now, the gifts that I'm going to talk about this morning are probably, for many people, the least exciting or sensational gifts that are out there. Uh, I think there's reason for that. These are more foundational gifts. And I don't know about you, but like when you build a house, one of the first things you do is you dig down. In New York State especially, you have to, you have to dig down. And then once you've dug down and you've got everything ready for where you want the floor, on the perimeter, you dig down another four feet. Why? Because there you're going to pour a, what's called a frost footer. A footer that goes below the line of the frost in New York State. Normally, anything four feet or deeper below that area is not going to be heaved by the freezing of the ground. It's not exciting. And even when you begin to lay some block for the first several feet, it doesn't look all that cool. It doesn't look like anything. In fact, oftentimes after you've got your house done, you take backfill and you fill it all up and you don't even see it anymore. But without that foundation, that house is not going to stand properly. And the gifts that I'm talking about today, though less sensational than some of the other gifts, less exciting, they are nonetheless 
God's intent to build a foundation that is going to hold the church of God strong for generations to come. So look at Ephesians 4.7. But to each one of us, each one, every one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So in other words, he's saying, the grace that you can get is dependent upon Christ's gift to us. Christ's grace to us, which we know knows no bounds because He is a resourceful God. He never runs dry. Therefore, He says, when He ascended on high, He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, He ascended, what does it mean but that He also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. And He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, in verses uh, 8, 9, and 10, there's just some weird wording, and there's even some argument among commentators about what it all means. But I think that this drawing that I have put up here for you is fairly simple. If you think about Christ's life, it starts with His birth. And we know a lot about that. It's in the Gospels. So Christ was born, we celebrated it Christmas time. A Savior is born. He lived his life for about 30 years, kind of in obscurity. But then at about the age 30, not exactly, but about the age 30, he began his ministry. That ministry brought him into the limelight. It brought all kinds of attention upon him by both those who were poor and in need, as well as the religious leaders that didn't like the following that he was gaining. That ministry actually brought him to the cross. The cross says that he died and was buried for three days in the tomb. And then it says, and although that all looks kind of squiggly there, that actually was an arrow that kind of goes up. I don't know what happened in the translation. But that arrow going up says that he ascended. Because remember, he showed himself to Mary, and Mary wanted to grab him. He says, don't touch me because I haven't ascended to the Father yet. He ascends to the Father. Then it says he came back down to earth. He met with the disciples where he walked through the wall, as it were. Though he could stand on the floor, he walked through the door and stood in their midst as they were all there frightened and afraid of what's going on. He ministered to them, it says, for 40 days, where then he ascended back to the Father, where he now sits at the right hand of God, awaiting the time at which we call the rapture, where he's going to return. It's what we call the second coming of Christ, where he's going to return for the church. But the scripture we just read said that he descended. He descended into the grave before he ascended. And when he ascended, when he ascended, it says he gave gifts to the church. And those gifts are referenced in verse 11. Look at that with me. That's kind of the key of what we're looking at. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some pastors, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. He gave gifts to to the church. Sylvia Evans words it this way. I like her wording. She says, He gave gifts to people that He might give people as gifts. 
He vested into people certain gifting so that God could then give those people as a gift to the church. So he says those gifts that we see here in verse 11 are gifts that God gives to the church. Now, the word equip in verse 12, if you look at verse 12, it says to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That word equip is the Greek word katartizmos. katartizmos. The first time we see that word is in the Gospels. And it literally means when Andrew and Peter were there and Jesus was walking along the shore. It says he found them katarmizios, the nets. They were mending the nets. So what he's saying is the job of that fivefold ministries, apostles, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, the job is to mend the nets. Well, in the context, who are the nets? You are. He says we are to work a way in which we can bring healing and wholeness and health to the body of Christ so that the body can grow up, become more mature. So in verse 13, when he says they're perfect, it's actually the word mature. That we become mature and that we then can do the work of the ministry. But he ends it, that last verse that I read to you, verse 16, says that we all can do our share. What's their purpose? What are they? So here's where we're going to actually look at the gifts. What they are exactly, okay? So the first gift we want to look at is that of apostle. Apostle. Um, by the way, some of the gifts tend to be more prominent, more on display than others. Some of the gifts tend to be there longer term. Some come and then they go based upon the nature of their ministry. The first one is apostle. Apostle doesn't usually hang around long. It comes from the Greek word apostolos. Apostolos. Uh, for those of you that like Greek words, that's just kind of the nature of what I do. I like it. It means one sent forth as a messenger or ambassador to establish a kingdom outpost in any area. Now, I've also put in your notes here just some things for you to know. I believe that every single one of these gifts that I'm going to reference, these five gifts, Christ fulfills himself in perfection. Christ is the perfect apostle, the perfect prophet, the perfect evangelist, the perfect pastor, and the perfect teacher. He fills them all. But he also gives us examples through other lives of other people who also fulfill it. So that's what they are. Uh, in order to be an apostle, you had to have a visible encounter with Christ, number one. Number two, you had to plant churches around an area. You had to start and grow churches, plant leadership. And number three, you had to have a ministry of signs and wonders. In other words, miracles accompanied your ministry. That's all under the word apostle or apostolos. In the Bible, there were several. There were the 12 apostles of Christ, of course. But there were several else in the New Testament. And if you look at your list, I've got it listed for you. Uh, Andronicus, and I've even given the text so that you can go and check them yourself. Andronicus, Junia. By the way, Junia is a feminine name. So it appears, certainly, that in the early church there were feminine, female apostles. Uh, James, Barnabas, Paul, Titus, Epaphroditus, Timothy, Silvanus, and Apollos were all called apostles in these different scriptures. The ministry of the apostle was to kind of plant or develop new churches using signs and gifts ministry. They come into an area, they do the work of God, churches are planted, they have authority to bring correction, kind of like a spiritual father or a spiritual mother in any house that they have helped to grow. So that Paul goes back to Corinth as the apostle who went to Corinth, and he says, I speak to you as a father. I'm separate from others. You have many teachers, but you only have one father. 
he was the father because he was the apostle that planted that work. Now, when it comes to this specific um, office, the office of apostle, as well as others, I want to say to you, it is, I believe, wrong, wrong, hear me, it is wrong for anyone to take the title to themselves. You don't just arbitrarily stand up one day and say, well, as I look at my life, I've assessed my life, I've looked at myself in the mirror, I think I'm pretty good looking, I'm tall, I've got all my hair, I've got all my teeth, I'm looking pretty good, I see God work miracles through me, and so I think I'm an apostle. I'm going to call myself an apostle. And so you go and you find somebody else who looks at your ministry and says, yeah, I agree with you, you're an apostle. You say, that's so good, that's so discerning of you. I'll call you an apostle too. And I see that kind of thing happening all over the body of Christ where people are self-proclaimed in some way. They call themselves an apostle because apostle sounds cool. I don't care what the title is. You could be bishop. I don't care. I don't believe any title you ought to claim for yourself. I think you ought to just serve Christ. And if others who are over you in the Lord see the gifting and the calling and they want to call it out, that's their job. That's what they do. So the higher calls to the lower. But others also recognize it. So that when I walk through this town, it, I, people say to me all the time, who are you? What's your name? I, I had somebody just recently, I was sitting at Bud's, I was talking to some, several people, I think there was like maybe six or seven in the conversation at the time, and some lady who was sitting over a little bit, well, who are you anyways? It, it wasn't me intending it. It wasn't like what she said. I wasn't trying to hold court or anything else. I was just sitting there drinking my coffee. And people sat down and were talking. She says, who are you anyways? I said, well, my name's Chris Lonneville. And immediately somebody says, well, he's my pastor. Somebody else says, well, yeah, he's the pastor of the church down there where they do the bottles and cans. Yeah, this is Pastor Chris. I'm not claiming anything. I am here as best I can to serve. I don't think you ought to claim titles to yourself. And, and in doing that, you allow others to recognize the gifting of God that's within you. And you don't have to hold anything dear and near to your heart because you're not finding your identity in that stuff. When I think about apostles, you know, we've got all the biblical examples of apostles that I mentioned, but I think there are even modern-day apostles. When I think of apostles on this modern-day level, I think of people like Carlton Spencer. IQ, Carlton Spencer, Costa Dare, people who traveled the world helping to establish churches, grow churches, grow people up from the inside out. And they never claimed anything. I can remember one time, Carlton Spencer, who was the son of the founder of Elam Bible Institute and Elam Fellowship. Carlton was an interesting guy. He walked around often with like these uh, kind of coarse woolen pants on, dress pants sometimes, but he almost always wore a white shirt with a tie and suspenders. He was a farmer at heart. He grew up in a farming family. But I can remember uh, one of my friends was telling me the story who went to school with us. He was asked to go with Brother Spencer. Brother Spencer is the president of the Elam Bible Institute. He was asked to go with him to a gathering of major Pentecostal leaders around the nation. So they're at this gathering, and they were all at a table where they were having snacks and refreshments and eating. And some guy who came in dressed in all this fine regalia, uh, th this friend of ours said, he was dressed in this big robe, and it had all kinds of gold and silver on it. And he had this high hat that went up so high and had a cross on the top and had a staff. I don't know, something like that. It, it was no, this guy was important. And they're standing together, and this guy looks at Brother Spencer and says, we're out of shrimp, can you go get some? And Brother Spencer said, sure. So he takes the plate. And again, he's standing there with his white shirt on, his suspenders, and his pants. 
He's the president of Elam. He's on the same plane as these other guys. But he picks up the tray and he goes back to the kitchen. And the guy standing next to him, I believe, was either Judson Cornwall or Bob Mumford, somebody like that. Somebody who was also major in the body of Christ was standing right next to this guy. He says, do you know who that was you just sent in there? The guy says, well, I thought he was one of the servants. That's Carlton Spencer. See, he never carried his title like he was something. He just lived to serve. We would be standing in line to go to lunch, and he would come along, and he would kneel down and tie our shoes for us. Or I can remember the first time it happened for me. We're, we're, we're standing in line waiting to get our lunch, and Brother Spencer comes. You're Chris Lanneville, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, and you, you come from Waterloo Assembly of God, right? And then he starts naming all these people. I thought, how do you know all this stuff about me? He goes, here, come into my office. And so he brings me and a few other guys in. He says, I'll be right back. He goes in, he gets our tray with the food on it. He brings it in his office and he sits there and talks to us. just wants to know more about us. That man, I believe, was an apostle who was never claimed to be an apostle. He would never have taken the title himself. But I believe he functioned like that. I think even somebody like a Billy Graham is like an apostle of God to the nations of the earth. So I think there are not only biblical examples, apostles, men and women who are sent forth as messengers of God to establish beachheads for the kingdom of God. I think there are also modern day ones. The second one on your list, prophet, comes from the word prophetes. It means one who speaks for another, one who speaks for God. And again, I've listed not only Christ, but prophets in the New Testament, Agabus, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, Saul, Judas, Silas. The ministry of a prophet was to help to establish new churches, a seer, somebody who sees into the heart and counsel of God, who's able to receive from God information in order to give counsel and direction, and even at times rebuke to the body of Christ. They're also often preachers. Now, there are three levels of prophecy. I want to make sure you catch this real quick. The there are several levels of prophecy. The first level is that of spirit of prophecy. Spirit of prophecy is when things are going on in any service. You might be in a service in which there's all kinds of prophetic ministry going on, and you find yourself, you don't normally function in prophecy. You, you're, you're not known for that. That's not something that's like a primary gifting for you. But you're standing next to somebody who's prophesying, and all of a sudden you realize you have some things that you think come from God and you want to share it. And you begin to, as it were, this is how I think of it, you surf the wave of prophecy. That's when the spirit of prophecy comes upon you. It's like Saul in the Old Testament. Saul, who was not a prophet, found himself standing among a bunch of prophets and the scripture says he began to prophesy. Why? Because he was among those who were prophets and the spirit of prophecy came upon him. So there are times in my life when I, I, I don't in any way claim any kind of major prophetic gifting at all. But there are times when I'm in a meeting when we're asked to minister to people prophetically. It's happened several times in my life. Everything in me is scared to death because I know that's not a primary gifting in me. And I don't want to say anything just to puff somebody up. And I don't want to say anything that might not be God. It happened when we were in China. We're, we're in China and we're ministering to all of these people who are there who are missionaries in China. There's probably 45, 50 of them there. And we're to minister. And I'm thinking, I didn't know this. I didn't agree to that. I agreed to come. I didn't agree to minister prophetically. If you want me to teach, I'll teach. But I don't want to minister prophetically. 
But the guy who's in charge says, well, what we want you to do is we want you to do prophetic ministry, and you're going to break it into three. So you won't even be with the other guys. So like, here's Ron Bergio, who's the president of Elam Fellowship at the time. He's over in this group. Here's Phil McNeil, who's a prophet. And I thought, I could just kind of tag on to Phil. I'll, I'll be with Phil. I'll just kind of nod and say, okay, yes, that sounds good. But he said, no, no, you're going to be over here. And once you're done prophesying over every single person in this group, you're now going to switch places, and you're going to go where Phil was. Phil's going to go where Ron was. Ron's going to go here. And you're going to do it again. Eight hours that day. Eight hours of prophetic ministry from somebody who doesn't feel any of that in himself. But I found the grace of God was sufficient in that moment to give prophetic words to each one that I felt genuinely was from God and came back again and again when people would say, I know you couldn't know. In fact, I can remember one specifically. We were actually prophesying over the leader. None of us could hear what anybody else was saying. I couldn't hear what Phil was saying or Ron or anything. We all got done. When we got done, we went to a coffee shop to sit and have coffee because that's what you always do. You have coffee. We had coffee, and there we began to share. Ironically, every single one of us gave the exact same word to the leader. Every single one of us. Again, it's called surfing. That's the spirit of prophecy. The second thing is the gift of prophecy. That's where God has actually vested something in you, where you, as a primary gifting, find it easy to minister in prophecy. And it might not look like everybody else. It might not be, thus saith the Lord. It might be, I believe God is saying. Or, in my heart, I feel like the Spirit might be saying. Or it might even be, I see a picture. Karen, Karen does this kind of stuff all the time. I'll be ministering with her, and she will come up with pictures about people's lives that I, I couldn't even figure out. Where did you even think of this picture? But she sees these pictures, and when she gives it, it's like a light bulb goes on in the heart of people. And they begin to understand something about God's heart for them. Now, the third level is, of course, the office of prophet. The, the, the gift of prophecy you can stir up almost at will. It's like you're in a situation that stirs up because that's what's in you. The office of prophet is somebody who walks in that as a mantle of prophetic at all times. It's not something that they have to work up at all. That's just who they are. God has made them that. It's declaring it. Now, even under this idea of prophecy, you don't do it to command or to control anyone. Uh, I lived through a time where the leaders and the prophets would tell you what color car you could buy, how much you could spend, who you could marry, how many children you should have, what you should dress in. I don't believe the spirit of the prophet or prophecy matches the character of Christ when we command or demand things of people. Ours is an authority of influence, not control. We don't tell people what to do. So I have people, even, even in this church, I have people come and say to me, tell me what to do. It's not my place to tell you what to do. It's your life. You figure it out. I can tell you principles of God. I can even at times tell you what I think God might be saying to you, but it's still your call, whether you believe that's from the Lord or not. I don't believe prophets ought to be giving dates or mates. And that's like one of our hard and fast rules. You don't tell people who to marry who to get together with, and you don't declare date. In fact, I believe every person who gives a prophetic word to somebody and says, this will happen on such and such a date, and it doesn't happen, I think you need to go back to that person and you need to apologize and say, I missed it. There have been major prophetic words that have been given on a nationwide level through the body of Christ, declaring something's going to happen on such and such a day, and it didn't happen, and I never heard another word out of that prophet. I think that's wrong. I think accountability means we need to stand up and say, apparently I missed it. I'm sorry. I have made so many mistakes in my life. I've said I'm sorry more in probably the last four or five years of my life than I have in the rest of my life. 
doesn't seem to get better. I think we ought to be free enough in our identity in Christ to say when we miss it. A prophet declares the mind and counsel of God to any given situation in a person's life. Number three, really quickly. We've got to move faster here. Evangelist comes from the Greek word evangelistes, a messenger of good news to bring glad tidings by preaching, inciting people to come to Christ. Uh, the one evangelist mentioned in the New Testament is Philip, who, by the way, was also a deacon. And I think it's an appropriate thing to recognize if you're not going to be a servant, you shouldn't think about holding any office anywhere. If you're not willing to bow down and serve, there's something wrong because you're not carrying the heart and character of God in the first place. There are people that I think of when I think about evangelists, as I'm sure you do. But most of all, I think about guys like Billy Graham. And by the way, it's a good example of somebody who I think can carry more than one gift. He's a man. Uh, how many of you have ever heard Billy Graham preach? How many, when you've heard Billy Graham preach, came away and say, wow, that's amazing in-depth teaching and preaching. I've never heard something so deep in my whole life. I went to hear him in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. He was doing a crusade. And what you don't know, perhaps, is that side by side with every crusade is a school of evangelism that Billy Graham hosts. So he invites pastors and preachers from around the world to come and learn at the school of evangelism. So I went to the school of evangelism. Part of the agreement for going to the school of evangelism is you have to serve in the crusades. So you're people who are meeting them at the altar and praying with people. So I'm there. He gets done the first night. I'm there with a friend of mine uh, who has a church of about seven, 800 people in Connecticut. We're there together. We're friends uh, with another United Methodist pastor. Him and I traveled together. We get there. We go through the first day, the school evangelism. That night is going to be the conference. The first time uh, Billy Graham is going to speak. Billy Graham gets up and speaks. And when he gets done, we're all supposed to come to the altar area and spread right around it like in a big U. And we're there supposed to wait for people to come. And when he got done, I'm telling you the honest truth. When he got done, I thought to myself, oh, my God, no one's going to come. This was the saddest presentation I've ever heard in my whole life. This was terrible. It was boring. This was like so simple. I mean, I'm not even a good preacher, but I could do better than that. that that's all going on in my mind. Billy Graham gives the call, and that night it was like 10,000 people came forward to accept Christ. And I realized something. It had nothing to do with what he said. He had a gift. And that gift was, as he declared the truth about Christ, something in the heart of people was stirred to respond. And they did respond. He has seen perhaps more people saved under his ministry than almost any man who's ever lived. I think he had a gift. And that's what Paul talks about here. But the truth is, we all have gifts. In fact, Paul tells Timothy, who was a pastor, stir up the gift of evangelism that's within you. Do the work of an evangelist. Every one of you have gifts within you, but all of us are called to share our witness with those around us. And some of you are better at it than others. Some of you are better at talking to people about Jesus and what He's done in your life. Use that gift that the body could be built up. Number four, pastor. The Greek word is poimen, P-O-I-M-E-N. It means shepherd or one who feeds the flock. It's used 18 times in the New Testament. And this is the only time in Ephesians 4 when it is translated pastor. All the rest of the time it's translated shepherd. It's one who watches over the sheep, the people of God. Uh, 
I believe pastor and teacher are probably the two most recognizable gifts. In fact, there are some who say because of the Greek structure of that verse, verse 11, that pastor-teacher should go together. In other words, you should be a teaching pastor. I believe they should be separate because I think they can be distinct. I think a pastor can be a teacher and a teacher can be a pastor, but not necessarily. You're to watch over the people of God. There are a lot of people I know, I've talked to people who are in the ministry. I've talked to one not all that long ago who's in the ministry as a pastor because they graduated from seminary and they got their degree and they were immediately put in as pastor. And that person would tell you, I don't really care about this. I'm just doing this until I get this section of my life done so that I can go on to something bigger and better because I want to be a teacher in a seminary. I don't like pastoring. I would suggest that person doesn't have a pastor's heart. I think you ought to have a heart for God and a heart for the people of God. There are some people who say that pastor is the function. That's the relationship. So that's why when sometimes people out in the community call me Pastor Chris, it's almost like whiplash for me because I'm thinking, I'm not your pastor. Pastor is a relational thing. And that's why it's hard sometimes when people in the church would say, you're not my pastor. Okay, I'm sorry to hear that because I carry the heart of these people in my heart. The other one is bishop. Bishop is called the office. Pastor's the function. And then elder is the character of God. All of those composite in one person. But a pastor, one who shepherds or watches over the people of God. And number five, teacher. And the Greek word is didaskalos. It's to hold discourse with others in order to instruct them. It's to give knowledge to the one who is being taught, to train, to educate, and to disciple. Paul, perhaps one of the greatest teachers of all, wrote approximately 50% of the New Testament books. He is a teacher consummate. His book on Romans and Galatians, it's, just, it's amazing the depth with which he teaches and the insight. But we have modern day teachers today. Some of you guys listen to them, perhaps on tapes still, cassettes or CDs or podcasts. People like um, Beth Moore, or um, Joyce Myers, Bob Mumford, Judson Cornwell, well-known teachers of the body of Christ. These are people who help to open the Word of God to us to greater understanding. I can remember the first time I ever heard um, Jack Hayford teach. It was in July of 1977. And I can remember him teaching a short three-part series on the book of Ephesians that literally became a hinge pin for changing my life. Something shifted inside of me because of the truths that he brought by way of revelation. That man was a teacher extraordinaire. And we have many throughout the body of Christ. All of these gifts, these five gifts, which are foundational within the body of Christ, all of them are expressive of God's desire that the church would grow up and become more mature. They would work well together. And it reminds me of a story of um, Linus from the Peanuts cartoon. Linus was watching TV one day, and Lucy came in and immediately demanded that he change the channel. And his response to her was, who do you think you are? By what authority do you come in here and command me to change the channel? She said, by the authority of these five fingers. Individually, they're not much. But when they get in this shape, They are a horror to behold. And Linus immediately said to her, what channel would you like? 
And then he walked away and he looked at his own hand and says, why don't you guys get it together like that? That's how the body of Christ is intended, that we would function together to become the unstoppable force that God has intended, that the kingdom of God would be manifest on the earth. That's his heart. That's his cry for the church of God. Those five gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, foundational. Some you see more than others. Some you see more regularly than others because others come and then they go and they do another work someplace else. But either way, they are foundational, fundamental for the work of the church. Would you stand with me? It is my personal conviction, and I believe it's true from the Word of God, that when we don't receive these gifts that God has for us, our life is diminished in some way. It's lessened. And there are a lot of people who go through the body of Christ. I've had people, you know, that I've asked, you know, where do you go? Well, I don't go to any church. I belong to the universal church. Well, who's your pastor? I don't have any pastor. I listen to whoever has the word of the Lord at that moment. Sounds great. Sounds spiritual. But it's not practical because those people aren't going to come and visit you when you're in the hospital or call and check on you. Those people don't care about your life. I don't care whether you get an envelope back with your name on it that says, dear so-and-so, I want you to know that I've been praying for you personally. Most of them don't. They put it in a huge pile, put their hand on it, pray for all of these letters that have come in, all these offerings, and then somebody else writes a stock letter back to you saying, I prayed for you. I think you need relationship with the ministries that God puts around you and to be able to see that God does it for your growth, for your maturity, as do I. I have people who speak into my life regularly that I want to know that I am open to anything they have to say to me that can help me to grow up and to become all that God intends. So we will never be all that God intends us to be if we don't function in relationship with the gifts He's given us in the body that He has planted us in. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I recognize that uh, this teaching is not as uh, sensational or exciting as some others. But I do believe, Father, it's your heart that the gifts you've given to the church be honored, respected, revered, and desired. In fact, you told Timothy, whoever desires the office of bishop or pastor desires a good thing. There's something built within the heart that says, that's what's inside of me. Lord, I pray that you would open all of our hearts to be able to see the need and the benefit for these gifts to be functional in our lives and in the life of this church as an entire entity, that we would grow and become better because of it. We would mature and become perfect or uh, better than what we were, that we would each one do our own share. God, bless this word to our minds, to our hearts. Help us to walk in relationship with one another and with those that you put around us as fivefold ministry leaders servant leaders in the house of God. I ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Have a great day. It's a beautiful day out there.